Welcome to Access Utah. I'm Tom Williams. According to Reuters, a 29-page draft by the Intergovernmental Panel on Climate Change, or IPCC, will warn that global warming will disrupt food supplies, slow world economic growth, and may already be causing irreversible damage to nature. It will also outline many ways to adapt to rising temperatures, more heat waves, floods, and rising seas. Today on the program, we're going to take a look at the state of the climate with uh, Kevin Trenberth, a distinguished senior scientist in the climate analysis section of the National Center for Atmospheric Research. He's a leader in the Intergovernmental Panel on Climate Change Assessments and in the World Climate Research Program. We'll also be talking with the Utah State climatologist Robert Gillis. They'll both be giving presentations at the Spring Runoff Conference. It's an annual conference at Utah State University. It'll be happening next week, Tuesday and Wednesday. Dr. Trenberth will speak on climate change and water from the globe to Utah. Dr. Gillis' presentation is long-range prediction of winter-prolonged inversions. And we hope you'll join the program here with your question or comment. Here's how you do that. 1-800-826-1495 is the phone number. Our email is upraxis at gmail.com. And you can join us at our Utah Public Radio Facebook page where you'll see a pretty picture of the globe. And we already have a couple of comments there. This is your chance to direct your climate change questions to experts in the field. We welcome in uh, Kevin Trenberth. Uh, Welcome to the program. Good morning, Tom. How are you? Uh, Very well. Uh, We're glad you could join us. Dr. Trenberth, uh, just more of your uh, biography, has uh, served on the 1995-2001-2007 Scientific Assessment of Climate Change Reports. In fact, it was lead author of those and and shared the 2007 Nobel Peace Prize, which went to the IPCC. Uh, so some some bona fides there. Um, Dr. Gillis, uh, director of the Utah Climate Center and Utah State Climatologist, joins us in studio. Welcome. Good morning, Tom. Good morning, Kevin. Good morning, uh, Robert. So let me let me start with you, Dr. Trenberth. Uh, the, the report IPCC latest assessment is much in the news. I think it's coming out to the latest one in three parts. First one, I think, already out. Much speculation. I think this is about part two. Tell us what the IPCC is, first of all. Yes, so the Intergovernmental Panel on Climate Change was set up beginning around 1988, and it was designed to do an assessment of all of the literature relating to climate and especially the growing role of humans on climate. And so there were major reports issued in 1990, in 1995, in 2001, and uh, 2007, and now the latest one, uh, as Tom said, is just uh, in, in the process of coming out. I've been mainly involved in working group one. There are three main working groups. Working group one deals mainly with uh, the physics of uh, of climate change, that is to say, the observations, what is happening, why, our ability to model it, and uh, future projections. Uh, Working Group 2, which is meeting at the moment, and their uh, report is going to be coming out uh, late uh, tomorrow, maybe, uh, they deal more with the impacts of climate change uh, adaptation, uh, building resilience, and strategies for coping with uh, climate change. And then Working Group 3, who will report later this year, they deal with what is called mitigation. That is to say, uh, the causes of climate change, 
which is which is mainly the increasing carbon dioxide and other greenhouse gases in the atmosphere, and what can be done to reduce those emissions, what strategies can be adopted, uh, what what might happen if we adopted certain kinds of policies in order to provide guidance to local, uh, state, and uh, national governments, and, and so on. Uh, and so uh, the the uh, reports have typically been about a thousand pages for each of these three, uh, and then there is a policymaker summary which is negotiated in great detail, word by word, and that's the process which is going on uh, right at the moment. And I suppose there's a lot of negotiation on that because that might be the the part, the only part that's read by a lot of people. That's correct, yes. And of course, as it says, policymakers summary, it's designed especially for policymakers and their advisors in particular. Uh, it's a, a lot more digestible than the full report. The full report is uh, an encyclopedia of the latest information on uh, climate change and uh, uh, basically a review of the literature over the last uh, seven years, very comprehensive review uh, as such. Let me ask you just a very general question. I'll ask first of Dr. Trenberth and then Dr. Gillis. Um, is the problem, on the whole, accelerating, getting worse? Where where are we, especially with with the global warming piece of this? Well, carbon dioxide is increasing. There's been more than a 40% increase uh, since pre-industrial times. Most of that increase, well, it's nearly all since about 1900. But more than half of that is since about 1980. A lot of people don't realize that actually the emissions of carbon dioxide into the atmosphere have tended to accelerate. Uh, there was a uh, the Kyoto Protocol was developed as a political instrument to try to reduce the rates of uh, emissions of carbon dioxide into the atmosphere. But uh, carbon dioxide has actually continued to accelerate in terms of the concentrations in the atmosphere. Now, in recent times, a lot of that has come from the tremendous growth that has occurred in especially China uh, and also uh, India. And so all of the gains that have been made in the U.S. and, and Europe in terms of cutting down somewhat on emissions uh, has been completely offset by uh, China and India. And this sort of highlights that it's really a global problem. You know, one way to think of it is that uh, from the standpoint of the Chinese, uh, the uh, people in the United States have put more carbon dioxide into the atmosphere than any other nation, and they're changing the Chinese climate. Mm. But, uh, you know, you can turn that around and say, right, uh, at the moment, the Chinese are putting more carbon dioxide into the atmosphere every year than any other nation, and they're changing our climate. Mm. Why isn't there a sense of outrage related to that? Uh, And, uh, you know, we just keep meandering along, and there's been no international framework to really address this adequately. And so uh, a lot of this uh, latest report actually deals with uh, the associated risks and adaptation. Uh, Given that we may have to live with some of the consequences, uh, what are those consequences and how do we best deal with them? We'll definitely get into consequences, risks, and uh, hopefully solutions. Same question to you, Dr. Gillis. Where, Where do we stand? Well, I mean, Kevin is just right on the ball there. I mean, today's ongoing rise in atmospheric carbon dioxide has been extremely rapid compared to a rise of, say, 100 uh, parts per million over the course of 12,000 years as Earth warmed from glacial to interglacial. 
this human-induced rise of an additional 120 parts per million has happened in roughly a century, and that's more than 100 times faster. Hmm. So as you said, Dr. Trenberth, I imagine a lot of scientists, maybe such as yourself, you could own this if you want to, uh, where's the outrage? <laughs> you know, they're, they're looking for the outrage from people or the concern uh, in, in polls, latest polls in America, some 40% uh, think that there's a real problem. 60%, well, this is, you know, don't think maybe there's this is uh, Maybe this is partly related to the very nature of scientists. Uh, the scientists, we are supposed to be uh, very objective. We deal with uh, facts. Uh, you know, it, it's often said that you can have your own opinions, but you can't have your own facts. And on some of this issue, uh, some politicians indeed want to have their own facts. And, and there's a lot of distortion that has occurred, and, and there's a lot of politics related to this. But most scientists don't engage in that uh, in those in that political process. And so the main people who are engaged are the vested interests, uh, or maybe the, some of the, the ideologues. And, uh, and, and so there's, there's not a, uh, well, I, I was going to say the word debate, but I, you know, for many things, uh, there's a tremendous amount of, of evidence, and, and it, it's really not a debate about that. I think there is a, a debate about, about what you do about it. But uh, as I say, uh, scientists are probably not the uh, adversarial group. Uh, maybe the environmental groups are uh, an adversarial group with regard to the vested interests, but the mm. vested interests have, uh, have poured tens of millions of dollars into a, into a misinformation campaign. Mm-hmm. Uh, Dr. Gillis, you, you were involved, I think, in a, uh, what did you call it? You told me before we went on the air, uh, uh, teaching scientists how to, how to communicate. That's right. The Ecology Center organized a science communications uh, workshop uh, yesterday and the day before. And the idea was, at least from my point of view, I was trying to impart some of my experience in dealing with uh, policymakers, for example, here in the state of Utah, and uh, how you communicate science to them, because often we are too jargonistic or, you know, uh, one reporter said that uh, <clears throat> they were actually quite scared of scientists and things like this. And so this lack of communication between the journalist, uh, the scientist, the politician, the environmentalist or whatever uh, can lead to all sorts of misconceptions. And uh, so we were trying to, it was about an hour and a half workshop where we were uh, going through various aspects of science communication. Hmm. Do, you, do you think better communications needed from scientists uh, as as dr trenberth is, is pointing out and i think we all you know we know this can become very political very fast and and even though you shouldn't have two sets of facts in the political realm as we all know right that happens well the issue is that climate change is extremely complex i mean kevin just talks about the ipcc reports and how huge they are and the fact that they're assimilating a huge amount of literature that's been produced in the last four to five years uh, and then you're trying to disseminate this this inherent complexity to to individuals uh, and of course many individuals work by perception so they say you said well 40% now uh, you know believe don't like that word of course or accept the science um, and 60% don't but that would change if we had an extremely warm summer it would probably jump up to 59 or 60% as it has done in the past Dr. Trenberth, um, I'm interested in, we dive into some of the science here um, uh, we had a program about coal two days ago and uh, the person I was talking to talked about something I had not 
heard about, uh, this is, uh, and she attributed it to the IPCC, uh, she talked about a carbon budget. And the fact that if you look at, uh, you know, acceptable levels of carbon and you look at that as a, as a budgeted item, we've already blown through 50% or so of that and, and likely to, you know, to reach 100% of that in the next, uh, I don't know, decade or two. Well, this relates to how much uh, can we warm the planet and still make it uh, livable without major disruptions. And one of the numbers which is often used uh, is uh, two degrees Celsius for uh, the global mean temperature increase uh, since pre-industrial times. And so far, we've gone up uh, 0.8 degrees Celsius. That's 1.4 degrees Fahrenheit. And, uh, and so we're, you know, a, a good part of the, the way there already. And then you can calculate how much more carbon dioxide you can put into the atmosphere. And uh, at the current rate, you know, we could be there in something like 20 years. Uh, and so the, we're putting far too much uh, carbon dioxide into the atmosphere at, at the current rate that we're doing that. Uh, climate change is inevitable. And, and the faster the climate change, the more disruptive it is apt to be. And so there is a very strong case, I think, to be made that we need to slow this process down as much as we possibly can. And, uh, and that means uh, looking hard at our energy choices and, and the and the use of fossil fuels in particular, trying to decarbonize our economy, uh, so to speak. Uh, Dr. Trenberth, what do you think about, we talked a couple of days ago, this, this program, we talked about carbon capture. What do you think about that? Well, this is a new technology that is being developed, and it's being deployed in a number of uh, places. And so the idea here is that if you burn coal, <clears throat> excuse me, uh, such as in a, a coal-fired power station, and, and there's a lot of those, and that's where a tremendous amount of the new carbon dioxide is coming from out of uh, China, and it has other air pollution consequences as well. So um, if you can put on the stack of the coal-fired power station a way to capture the uh, carbon dioxide, uh, then maybe you can bury it somewhere. And the one way in which that is being used is to capture some of it and inject it down into wells uh, that have been used for recovery of other fossil fuels, for instance. And in fact, uh, things like uh, you know, fracking is, is uh, perhaps a related activity, but in this case, you're actually pumping down carbon dioxide at high pressure into the ground where hopefully it will stay, and, uh, and, and you can uh, help uh, the mining process and make it a little more efficient. So one of the problems with this activity is that you've got to find a place to put all the carbon dioxide. And uh, one place might be deep in the ocean where there's a tremendous amount of pressure and it might be able to be kept. Uh, if you put it into uh, mines, I mean, carbon dioxide's heavier than, than air in, in general. So maybe it'll sit there for a long time, but there's a real risk with an earthquake or something like that, that there could be a big, uh, big bubble of carbon dioxide come into the atmosphere and uh, and there's been an example of that in Africa where there was a big burp out of a lake where there'd been a lot of uh, debris on the bottom of the lake that had uh, produced uh, carbon dioxide as it was uh, decaying. And that carbon dioxide spread out and actually killed a lot of people at a nearby village uh, by uh, 
cutting down their oxygen supply. Mm. Uh, so there, there, there's a certain amount, I think, where this can be done, but it also has some inherent limitations because uh, of where do you put the stuff after you've mm. captured it. And it also adds, a, adds quite a bit to the cost. It adds probably, um, I don't know, about a third to the cost of generating electricity by, by using coal to do this. Mm. Uh, Dr. Gillis, I want to get your perspective on this, uh, not only on the, the carbon problem, the global warming problem, but, but also po- possible solutions, perhaps, like carbon capture. Well, Kevin definitively answered that question for sure. And, of course, the technology is not there yet, at least as far as I know. Um, Of course, other solutions are alternative uh, ways of generating electricity, whether it be solar, wind, ocean, etc. And those are, you know, I just read in the newspaper that Rocky Mountain, I believe, is setting up its first uh, solar farm here in Utah under the Blue Sky Initiative. So there are various aspects like that too. But of course, uh, the elephant in the room is our ability to move away from a carbon economy. Um, And uh, that's where often lots of trouble exists, Mm -hmm. as you know. We'll uh, continue this discussion, uh, talking, picking up that point after a brief break. Uh, The economy, uh, how much should uh, and will government have to be involved? And I want to get talking about water precious uh, resource that's going to be the subject of spring runoff uh, conference it's an annual conference at utah state university uh, dr kevin trenberth who is a distinguished senior scientist in the climate analysis section of the national center for atmospheric research is with us he's also a leader in the the intergovernmental panel on climate change assessments the latest one is is coming out in uh, i think parts two and three still to come out Uh, Dr. Robert Gillis is a Utah State Climatologist and Director of the Utah Climate Center. We'd love to get your perspective on climate change, your questions, at 1-800-826-1495. You can join us at upraxcess at gmail.com, upraxcess at gmail.com, or join us on our Utah Public Radio Facebook page. As we head into break, let me remind you of important business that we're taking care of today in our membership drive. Uh, A listener challenge began at 7.30, and it will be continued through the Zesty Garden, so until 11 o'clock. So we really want to hit this. Don and Dan Drost of Logan will uh, kick in $1,200. This is an all-or-nothing listener challenge, 25 pledges. Uh, So just a reminder, in support of spring fundraising, Don and Dan Drost will contribute $1,200 if we receive 25 pledges, but it has to come in by 11 o'clock. Uh, Become a member of UPR by pledging online to upr.org. That's upr.org. Don is a certified public accountant in Logan. Dan is a professor in USU's Department of Plant Soils and Climate in the College of Agricultural and Applied Sciences. He's an extension vegetable specialist, so we encourage anyone associated with them. Again, we need 25 pledges. Yours can be one of them. And in your comments, certainly say you support Access Utah. I'd take that as a a personal uh, favor. Think so. Uh, so the uh, place to go is upr.org. Upr.org. Help us out with the membership drive. More following break. Programming on Utah Public Radio is made possible in part by our members and Crumb Brothers Artisan Bread at 300 South and 300 West in Logan, open Monday through Saturday until 3, offering 100% whole grain raisin, oatmeal, date, and millet breads. 
Hi, my name is Dawn Kirby. I live in North Logan, and I am the Senior Associate Dean in the College of Humanities and Social Sciences at Utah State. And what I find is that UPR offers all of the things that I would expect with NPR in general. Every station has a personality. Every station offers local tidbits of news and local interest stories, um, like gardening with Brian Earle. What's not to love about that? I think public radio is an important outlet for straight-ahead news and information. You can listen to Access Utah, and just recently you've talked about genealogy and family history. That was this morning, I think I heard that. And there was a spillover from Vegan Lifestyle from the previous show. Um, I can learn about science, uh, epigenetics. Who even knew there was such a thing? But by listening to the science questions and reading about that on the website, I learn about that. The book interviews that are for Utah just a wealth of information, and, and UPR is celebrating its 60th year, and that's really pretty amazing. Anything that has been that consistently in the service of the public for that long is well worth supporting. To pledge your own support for Utah Public Radio, visit our website at upr.org and click on Become a Member. You're listening to Access Utah. I'm Tom Williams. Climate change is our topic, very important topic. According to Reuters, a 29-page draft by the Intergovernmental Panel on Climate Change, or IPCC, will warn that global warming will disrupt food supplies, slow world economic growth, may already be causing irreversible damage to nature. It will also outline many ways to adapt to rising temperatures, more heat waves, floods, and rising seas. We have with us on the telephone uh, a lead author of... Uh, those IPCC assessments. That's Dr. Kevin Trenberth. He's a distinguished senior scientist with the Climate Analysis Section at the National Center for Atmospheric Research and a leader in the Intergovernmental Panel on Climate Change Assessments and World Climate Research Program. We also have with us a Utah State climatologist Robert Gillis. Both these gentlemen will be presenting at the Spring Runoff Conference. An annual conference happens at USU about this time every year. The conference is Tuesday and Wednesday of next week on the Utah State University campus. And I believe that is uh, registration obviously still open for that. You can uh, join that many talks about water uh, issues in uh, in Utah. Very important. Uh, Kevin Trenberth will speak on climate change and water from the globe to Utah. And coming up on this program, we'll have him address those issues. Dr. Gillis's presentation is long-range prediction of winter prolonged inversions. I want to, uh, as we resume our conversation, want to go to a, an exchange we had when we talked about coal. And, and, of course, coal relates very much to these issues. It's uh, one of the uh, chief culprits in uh, emitting uh, carbon into the atmosphere. Uh, here's what Charles Ashurst had to say. This is two days ago. And this is on our Facebook page. Uh, we talked about how uh, how do you uh, how do you solve the problem, and and one way, of course, is uh, getting the energy markets their cap and trade programs. Uh, do we need to get government involved? Here's what Charles says: I think energy markets could do a good job of sorting out whether coal or whether renewable energy, for that matter, makes sense, provided you account for all the costs within energy markets, including your greenhouse gas emissions costs, including your lost opportunity costs resulting from a transition from fossil carbon energy to renewables. 
And then he goes on to say, real Republicans would have gotten this done decades ago instead of building an impenetrable fortress around a stance of you can't trust climate science. I have nothing against Republicans. Bring on some Republicans. We need them. Then Stephen McIntyre replies, Charles Ashurst is exactly right. But the thing is that the fossil fuels industry puts an enormous thumb on the scales, making it impossible to get an honest accounting of the economic costs of coal and other fossil fuels. I wonder if we get a, re- a response to that. The, the economic issues and then perhaps the, the role of government here from, from uh, Dr. Trenberth first. Well, yes. I mean, this is a very interesting point. The, the, one of the key things here is that we sell coal and, and oil and uh, people burn it, but there are all kinds of so-called externalities, all kinds of other costs that are borne by other people. You know, one of the most obvious ones is uh, air pollution. And uh, so who pays for the air pollution? The, the people who suffer from asthma or, uh, you know, poor quality air and so on. And so that uh, has a, a real cost attached to it. But now we're talking about the cost of climate change. And already we think that the costs of climate change are in the tens of billions of dollars each year. And uh, you can point to things like the major drought across the United States in uh, 2012, or even things like uh, Superstorm Sandy. And there's uh, studies now which show that Superstorm Sandy was probably a little bigger and more intense because of climate change. And, uh, and as a result, maybe the subways in New York City and so on would not have been flooded if it had not been for the climate change element. And so immediately you're in the tens of billions of dollars kinds of costs. Uh, the one of the things which is important for Utah and the West is uh, indeed water and uh, the the droughts that occur and uh, especially the risks of wildfire and uh, you know I'm in Colorado and we have had some major wildfires and loss of life or, or loss of uh, houses uh, should I say uh, in the in the last couple of years and uh, you know we've we've seen that uh, recently uh, in in California and, and other parts of the West so this is a, a real cost it's a downstream cost and um, and and the fundamental principle here which should be embraced by uh, Republicans and everyone, is uh, user pays. And so if you're burning fossil fuels, shouldn't there be some kind of a fee, or you might call it a carbon tax up front, that, uh, that helps to pay for all of these uh, downstream uh, costs. And so that's, uh, you know, there are other ways of doing this through uh, cap and trade and and other mechanisms, but inevitably it means that there is some kind of government uh, involvement because uh, as I mentioned before, it's not just what happens in Utah or in the United States, it's also what happens in uh, China and uh, the rest of the world, and this is a global problem. And so, forging international agreements and a proper framework that uh, all countries can operate in fairly is uh, is a tremendous challenge, and uh, and that's a big part of the problem, I think. Dr. Gillis, uh, uh, Dr. Trenberth has pointed out the complexity of uh, the problem on all all uh, sides of this, including. Mm-hmm perhaps governmental response. Right. And and actually, Kevin brought up a lot of good points, of which one is a nice segue into even my talk uh, at the Spring Runoff Conference, which is something that is very somewhat unique to Utah, and that is our really nasty inversions. Mm. 
And a lot of people attribute that to the topography, you know, the mountains and the valleys, you know, this valley bowl uh, trapping uh, pollutants due to a temperature inversion. But in reality, um, the big persistent inversions that we get that last a week or two weeks are driven by high pressure systems, you know, stalling over, you know, the intermountain west. And our research shows that these are actually driven by what happens uh, in the tropics. So Kevin keeps making the point that this is a global problem. And so the inversions in Utah are part anthropogenic. In other words, we are, our population is growing. More people are driving cars. And so we're producing uh, more of the VOCs and things, well, the pollutants that come from cars. But, in, but the real problem does lie, you know, with the fact that this is a climate force system and how that will change in the future under the scenarios of increasing carbon dioxide uh, will be seen too. Hmm. Uh, Dr. Trenberth, I wonder if you could, uh, maybe we could make a segue into water issues. Of course, very, very important to people in Utah, second dry state in the, in America. Um, I, I think you make a point, or going to make a point in, in the spring runoff conference, that uh, there's uh, increased intensity in storms, for example. I wonder if you could yes. uh, talk about that and, and then uh, maybe bring that to, to, to Utah. And we'll have Dr. Gillis do that as well. He's, he's done a paper or two on this. Yes, well, so temperature has increased in Utah. I think the uh, since the late 1980s, uh, Utah has been running about one degree Fahrenheit above temperatures for the previous um, 50 years or something like that, and, and maybe two degrees Fahrenheit above uh, what it was uh, prior to uh, about 1930. Uh, so... Um, uh, Robert can probably speak a lot better to that, but warmer air can hold more moisture. And as long as there's a moisture source, which is always true over the oceans, then there is more moisture in the atmosphere. Uh, so the relative humidity tends to remain about the same, but the, uh, the, but the fact that the air can hold more moisture means that it actually does. And that means that when a storm comes along of any sort, whether it's a thunderstorm or a big extratropical storm, even a snow storm, there's more moisture in the atmosphere, and so it rains harder or it can even snow harder in the middle of winter. And, uh, and so we tend to have more intense precipitation events. This increases the risk of flooding. At the same time, in places where it is not uh, raining, then uh, there's a little bit of extra heat from the increase in carbon dioxide in the atmosphere. And that heat has to go somewhere. It goes into drying, so things dry out a little quicker. That means droughts tend to set in a little quicker. They become more intense. The, the risk of wildfire goes up. And so ironically, at both ends of what we call the water cycle, the hydrological cycle, the droughts uh, and the floods, the risk of both of these go up with climate change. And this is pretty universal as it turns out. There are some other interesting things that are uh, important with regard to things like the mountains uh, and uh, in and around Utah that we can perhaps touch on as well. Yeah, Dr. Gillis, I wonder if you could uh, you know, take that and run with that. With regard to Utah, what, what can we expect? What are the probabilities? Well, what can we expect and what has been happening over the last 50 years? Um, we did a de definitive paper on this, which we published in the uh, Journal of Climate and showed that uh, northern Utah's uh, precipitation regime is changing from snow to rain. 
but we're getting more precipitation, which in one hand may be a good thing. Kevin is right um, that the storms are more intense. We're actually getting uh, less storms coming into the state, but those that are coming in are more intense. So there's this shift in the hydro uh, hydroclimate regime uh, from snow to rain. And when you think about all the counties, bar two, I think Emory County and Salt Lake County, all get their water from groundwater. And that groundwater is rep- uh, is replenished by our snowpack. So if our snowpack is shifting, we're getting less snow, um, then you know that has implications for the groundwater storage. And if we're getting more rain, that has implications for runoff, floods, and, and things like that too. So we've definitely got a shift. And Kevin's right, our temperatures have been increasing in different magnitudes around the state. What about uh, other economic impacts, uh, say the ski industry, food production? Yes, I mean, uh, the the ski industry, I believe, I think it was almost 10 years ago, actually uh, looked at the climate models at that time in terms of projections because the projections uh, show that indeed that the snow-to-rain ratio or the shift from uh, snow-to-rain is going to accelerate uh, as we move. And that will mean, obviously, there'll be less snow, for example, uh, for the mountains, so you may have to make snow, and you know that's very costly. Mm -hmm. You're listening uh, to a discussion of climate change, obviously. You're listening to Access Utah, and uh, it's Dr. Kevin Trenberth, who is uh, with the National Center for Atmospheric Research. He is has been a lead author on, uh, I think, all of the IPCC assessments. The latest one is uh, coming out in three parts uh, right now. I think the, the part two is, is due out uh, pretty soon. And we have with us uh, Dr. Robert Gillis who is a Utah State climatologist. If you'd like to join this conversation, we hope that you will with your question or comment to upraxis at gmail.com, upraxis at gmail.com. And uh, you can join us uh, uh, on the telephone as well, 1-800-826-1495, 1-800-826-1495. But before you do that, we hope that you will go to our website, upr.org, upr.org. Help us to meet this challenge. Dan and Don Drost of Logan are putting up $1,200, but we have to get 25 pledges by 11 o'clock. So won't you let your uh, one of those be yours at uh, upr.org, upr.org. We're uh, going to do uh, more on this subject following this break. Waste not. Studies show leaking faucets and toilets account for as much as 14% of all indoor water use. That's 10 gallons per person per day. By replacing an old toilet with a new model, the typical household can save up to 21,000 gallons of water per year. Waste Not is made possible by the Logan City Public Works Water Conservation Department. Information at loganutah.org slash publicworks. On the Thistle and Shamrock this week, a great singer, a fine interpreter of song, a songwriter, an outstanding guitarist, a broadcaster and a raconteur. They are all one and the same, the legendary Archie Fisher. Join me for a rare opportunity to chat with Archie and reflect on five decades of a musical life. Friday night at nine on Utah Public Radio. You're listening to Access Utah. I'm Tom Williams. Climate change is our topic today. We have two experts in the field with us, Dr. Kevin Trenberth 
is a distinguished senior scientist in the climate analysis section at the National Center for Atmospheric Research and a leader in the Intergovernmental Panel on Climate Change Assessments, the latest of which is coming out, uh, has come out, and it's coming out in three parts. We also have with us Utah State climatologist Robert Gillis, who's director of the Utah Climate Center. Uh, those two gentlemen will be uh, giving presentations next week. Their presentations are on April 1st, Tuesday, at the annual spring runoff conference at Utah State University. The conference continues on Wednesday as well. More information, just Google uh, Spring Runoff Conference USU, and uh, you'll get information there on how you can attend. Um, I want to uh, uh, to move to uh, solutions, uh, perhaps. And I understand that's part three, Dr. Trendworth. That'll be coming out later in this latest assessment. Well, there's two parts to solutions. One of them, as I mentioned before, is trying to slow down or stop the problem in the first place. That's one, one kind of solution. But the other one is to recognize that climate change is already with us and developing better strategies for how to build resilience to the threats that exist, uh, how to adapt to climate change. Hmm. What, uh, Dr. Gillis, I wonder if you could uh, talk about that as well. Uh, it just seems so daunting. And and it, it and I guess any solu- any effective solutions are going to have to be worldwide. Yes, and the the plate is not equal for, in this respect. Um, in the developed world, uh, the ability to be re- or to adapt or to have resilience to this kind of problem is very different from the undeveloped world. So, as you know, we have a project in Nepal, and there, you know, you have these very small farms that. Uh, they can they can't even grow enough food under current conditions, uh, you know, to feed themselves for the whole of the year, and with climate change there in Nepal, that's going to be very very different, and so they're not particularly resilient. Whereas, for example, here in say in the state of Utah, we 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 recognise we're having a regime change in in terms of uh, snow terrain, uh, we're getting more precipitation, and then the big question is how do you capture that precipitation with uh, the fact that our population here will double, say, in twenty years. Mm. Dr. Trenberth, are you, are you hearing about any particular projects, you know, under the heading of, um, you know, think globally and act locally that, that are promising to you? Well, there's certainly a lot of action going on, on locally in, in various cities, including uh, my own city here in uh, Boulder, Colorado. Uh, and a number of uh, states have been uh, active in, in various ways. Uh, and uh, there's uh, quite a lot that, that can be done. But there's also some strange things that happen. One of them has been Australia. Australia was very late to sign the Kyoto Protocol. The Labor government uh, actually introduced a a carbon tax, and now the new government uh, is trying to repeal or or do away with that carbon tax. And yet Australia is one of the countries that is most affected by climate change with uh, floods and droughts. So it's, uh, I think it's very strange in, in the reactions of this uh, current government. But one of the threats that happens when it happens regionally is that if you have an industry and, uh, and you, you put some sort of a price on carbon, uh, for instance, uh, then the industry immediately threatens, well, we'll move, we'll go to a different country, we'll go to a different state. Uh, and, and so they can play off the fact that um, one state is trying to do something and another, the next door state may not be. And, uh, and so it, it's very important, I think, to have uh, 
national guidelines within the U.S. and then for uh, internationally to also have a framework that the countries can work in under. And, and so you can't trade off, uh, uh, industry can't play off one country versus another. And so that's what's lacking at the moment, and that's one of the great difficulties. I have a uh, Facebook comment here, which would take us back to earlier in our conversation. Very interested to to get your reaction. I'll go first with Dr. Gillies on this. Um, This is Stephen Amott on our Facebook page. And uh, Mr. Amott, I think, would be reflective or representative of, I don't know, some number uh, of people. He says, the only thing that will contribute to climate changes or weather, for that matter, over time, religion aside, is the fact that man, in his supposed knowledge and understanding, will not keep the commandments, thus allowing God to bless him with a multiplicity of blessings. So this is a kind of you know a religious framework, which in some case cases uh, impel people to uh, under the idea of stewardship of the earth to to action on this issue. But in other cases, maybe under a millenarian view, God will take care of everything. We don't have to worry mm-hmm, about mm-hmm. Uh, about this. So how, uh, probably for governmental solutions, uh, you're going to have to convince some percentage of people like, uh, like Stephen Abbott. That's a tough one, Tom, I'm afraid. Um, <clears throat> I mean, I'm a man of science and not necessarily of religion. And so I purport a solution based upon scientific principles. And it's sort of interestingly you brought that up because I do remember when I first became state climatologist and the director of the Climate Center, I I wrote an op-ed piece on climate change in our local newspaper. And I got many emails, as you might expect, some along these lines. And one person actually uh, wrote in and said, um, look, the science is all nonsense. Really what matters is the mind calendar. And that says that the world is going to end in 2012. Mm -hmm. And of course, I don't usually reply to these emails, but I thought at least I could give this one a reply. And uh, I replied that actually what you say is a testable hypothesis. And of course, we're still here. Dr. Trenberth, what, your, your reaction? Yes, there's actually different parts of the Bible that uh, come down on this in different ways. You know, you can have in, in Genesis, say, in the beginning God created the heavens and the earth, and then God said, let us make man in our image after our likeness and let them have dominion over the fish in the sea and over the birds in the heavens and over the livestock and over all the earth and over every creeping thing that creeps on the earth. And uh, then, you know, a little bit later it says, you know, be fruitful, multiply, fill the earth and subdue it and have dominion over the fish in the sea and so on. And so you can point to that and say, well, humans, um, you know, should um, should exploit the system or something like that. But in Genesis 2.15, it says the Lord God took man and put him in the Garden of Eden to work it and take care of it. And and so the whole business of looking after your um, environment uh, also uh, is one which you can easily find in the Bible. And so you can point to different parts of it to justify different kinds of actions, if you wish. We are reaching the end of our time. By the way, uh, another comment on our Facebook page, Charles Asher says, I think I'll chip in a few coppers to this station. So thanks, Charles. <laughs> Hope that you do. Hope that many of you ch- join uh, Charles. And we're talking directly to you. That's because we have a listener challenge uh, from uh, Dan and Don Drost. Uh, $1,200. That's an all-or-nothing challenge, though. We need 25 pledges by 11 o'clock. 
we're chipping away at that, but not uh, but a little ways away. So your call right now will, will uh, do a lot of good. Uh, go to our website, upr.org, upr.org. Final question uh, to, to each of you gentlemen. Let me, let me begin uh, with uh, Dr. Gillis. And I had to end on a down note, but I, I'm the stakes are so high if we're you know if we're listening to uh, assessments like the IPCC, what keeps you up at night uh, with respect to to climate change? <laughs> um, the science actually, uh, because uh, <clears throat> there are some you know uh, projections there that don't look particularly good in some respects, but it's not all bad per se. Um, but regardless of that, we still have a lot to learn about the climate system, especially here in Utah, where we're in a sort of transition zone between the mid-latitudes and the tropics. And, uh, you know, people now are starting to uh, appreciate, I would say, the science uh, and take note. And I think potentially, uh, you know, take some actions uh, in the future. Dr. Trenberth, uh, final comments. Uh, well, you know, what you do about this is very much related to value systems, and part of my value system is that I worry uh, greatly about what kind of a planet we're handling handling the, the future generations. Uh, I'm a grandfather. I have, a, uh, in fact, a new grandchild uh, coming uh, next month, or, or thereabouts, actually May 8th, I guess it's, uh, it's due. Um, and... And so I w- really worry about the kind of environment that uh, they're going to be facing, uh, say, 50 years from now. Um, and, uh, you know, we don't have to solve the problem today, but we do have to start solving the problem. And, and we're certainly not doing enough on either front in, in, in really um, slowing down this problem, uh, decarbonizing the economy, uh, building uh, international agreements, and also uh, in planning for the changes that are already uh, clearly underway. We'll leave it there. Uh, Dr. Kevin Trenberth has been with us. Uh, he'll be presenting at the Spring Runoff Conference that's happening next week, Tuesday and Wednesday, on the USU campus. Thanks so much for joining us. You're most welcome. Can I say one thing? Yes. I'm a big fan of public radio. Uh, all your listeners should pledge. <laughs> well, thank you. Dr. Kevin Trenberth <laughs> says you should pledge. Do it. Uh, go to upr.org, upr.org. Uh, Dr. Gillis. And likewise, uh, ditto, um, big fan of UPR, always was a big fan of the BBC, and UPR is sort of the American equivalent. Uh, people, go online and please pledge. Two distinguished scientists tell you you should pledge. <laughs> you you should do it. UPR.org, UPR.org. Uh, so for, for producers uh, Katie Swain and Bennett Purser, I'm Tom Williams. Thanks so much for listening today. Public Radio presents StoryCorps, an oral history project in conjunction with the National Library of Congress, recorded in May of 2013 in St. George. This year, the Utah Shakespeare Festival will begin its 53rd season. At StoryCorps, 82-year-old Fred Adams told the festival's executive director, Scott Phillips, about founding the festival shortly after he moved to the small community of Cedar City. I had just come out from uh, New York to uh, this small community, Cedar City, Utah, back in 1959 when I arrived. It was a bustling community of 18,000 with, <laughs> with a small junior college of a, a couple of hundred students is all. I was brought in actually to, to start a, a theater department. 
I met my uh, wife there. Cedar City was just undergoing a terrible experience. Cedar City was built on uh, the iron ore industry, and uh, the mines out west of the city uh, were the main uh, income uh, for for the community. Japanese steel had become so accessible and so uh, inexpensive that American steel industry just kind of crumbled. Oh, it couldn't have been more than six months. Uh, over 700 families in Iron County and Cedar City. Ah, Iron were, County, that's iron ore. Iron ore, and they were forced to leave. And of course, where Cedar City sits, right in the heart of the Utah parks, within an hour's drive of Bryce Canyon to the north, an hour and 10 minutes drive to the south to Zion National Park, Grand Canyon only a couple of hours away. It had become a real tourist mecca, and tourism was the only industry left in that little community. My wife and I were in a, a laundromat called the Fluffy Bundle. We were doing our laundry together. I'd gone there with my laundry, and there she was with hers. We were fiancés at the time, and in my Welch manner, I said, why don't we just conserve and put all of our laundry into one dryer? Well, of course, it <laughs> took forever, and we were putting nickel after nickel after nickel after nickel into the dryer. As a result, we, uh, while we were killing time, we sat in my, in my little T-bird outside under a big cottonwood tree, and we started putting together what we would like to do in Cedar City. I had been to the Ashland, Oregon Shakespeare Festival and, and had seen what that festival had done for that little community of Ashland, which was very similar in size uh, and in situation, hundreds of miles from anything, from, from big cities to either side. And uh, we decided we could, do a, we could do a Shakespeare festival. So uh, I had to go out and raise the $1,000 for the first summer's budget. And this was back in 1959. Well, it was actually in 1961. I went to the Elks Club, and I went to the Kiwanis, and I went to the Rotarians, and I went to the Chamber of Commerce. Uh, and I must say, the Chamber of Commerce, when I gave the idea of a Shakespeare festival, uh, the idea went over <laughs> like a pregnant pole vaulter. Uh, <laughs> it, it was dead silence in the room. Uh, when I went to the City Fathers to ask them if there would be any chance of some subsidy, uh, I, I was literally laughed out of the chamber. They thought that was the dumbest thing. Now, if I'd come up with a uh, with a, with a, uh, a festival that, that had some merit to it, but Shakespeare, absolutely ridiculous. Hmm. One of my students said, well, my brother is the president of the Lions Club. Why don't you go to the talk to Ken? And we went to the Lions Club that morning, uh, six in the morning for breakfast. After I had done my spiel, one of the Lions raised his hand and he said, Fred... How much of the $1,000 that you require do you think that you're going to be able to raise in tickets? Well, I answered to him very openly. I, I figured that we could raise all of it, but we had to have upfront money in order to buy lumber and fabric, etc. And he made a motion to the Lions Club that they underwrite the Utah Shakespeare Festival for any amount up to $1,000 that we did not earn in ticket sales. It was unanimous. That gave us our, our nest egg. We brought in over $3,000 that summer. Didn't have to, to pay a thing to the Lions. They never had to pay a dime out. Right. And, uh, and we had $2,000 left over to start season number two. And from that day on, we only spent the money that we had raised the year before. Uh, we have some 140, 150,000 people that see the productions each season. Yeah, it's, it's been a remarkable journey. Thanks. It's been fun. And it's been fun doing it with you. These interviews were recorded at StoryCorps, a national initiative to record and collect stories of everyday people. Excerpts were selected and produced by Utah Public Radio.
Support for StoryCorps on Utah Public Radio comes from Dixie Regional Medical Center, located on two campuses in St. George, serving northwestern Arizona, southeastern Nevada, and southern Utah. Information at DixieRegional.org. This is Utah Public Radio, KUSR HD1 Logan, KUSK HD1 Vernal, KUSL HD1 Richfield, KUST HD1 Moab, KCEU Price, and KUSU FM HD1 Logan.